What a blast it was to catch up with an old friend, an old competitor, someone that I certainly admired on the football field for years and years and years. Carson Palmer was a Pro Bowl NFL quarterback over 15 years in the NFL. Probably could have been one of those guys still playing into his 40s, but he walked away with his health and he walked away to continue to love and care for his family. He's joined with compassion, as I have, to be part of the team to help fill the stadium. You're going to hear that through this podcast. It's an initiative that Compassion International has put together and put an incredible team together. Many members that you have met through this podcast over the years, like Nate Solder and Matt Hasselback, Carson Palmer is part of the team, and we're joining together to fill a Stadium, about 70,000 kids, Compassion International has figured uh, through this pandemic, unfortunately, have not been sponsored, have not gotten the care and the love, the attention uh, that Compassion provides to millions and millions around the globe. And it's our hope and it's our desire and it's Carson's desire in his heart to help fill that stadium. You'll hear that uh, over the course of this podcast, as well as Carson's amazing journey to a personal relationship with Jesus that's helped guide him along the way. I've known you for a bunch of years. Uh, many in the audience have known you from probably your your USC days and beyond as a football player. But what I don't know, Carson, is kind of where it all started, um, where you grew up, the kind of home you grew up in. Uh, what was life like in the Palmer home growing up? Yeah, so I was very fortunate um, to grow up with uh, a dual parent home. My mom and dad were very involved, very loving drug me to church at a young age when I didn't want to go on Sundays. I wanted to go outside and play. And, and my mom forced me to go at, uh, from as far back as I can remember. And what a blessing that was, um, teaching me who God was at a young age. And at, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven 10, 11 years old, you, you know, you don't want to go to church on Sundays and you don't know the importance of having Christ in your life. And like any, like most kids, like my kids now, when when we're waking up uh, pre-pandemic to go to church, now we're we're online and watching church online. But my kids fight it on Sunday mornings. They want to go outside and play, and um, I think of it every every Sunday morning when I'm trying to get my kids dressed and they want to they want more breakfast or they want this and they're trying to delay going to church. I I remember myself being that same kid, and I remember my mom not budging. We're going to church. It's Sunday. And, um, you know, that's how I grew up going to church. And it's what I'm going through with my kids today. And as they get older, they're understanding um, who Jesus is more and more um, as, as they get older, my, especially my two oldest twins that are 11. Um, they're fighting it less and less in their understanding who Jesus is and, and um, how to pray and, and how to be a Christian and that it's okay to talk about God at school, even though they don't go to a, a religiously based school right now. Um, so I'm going through all those those steps with my kids currently, um, and what keeps my wife and I going and 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 dragging them along is you know me remembering around the time um, I was in probably a freshman in high school or maybe a sophomore in high school, all of a sudden realizing who Jesus is, how important he is, how important it is to go and worship Jesus in church or at home online, um, how important my personal relationship is with Jesus and how important my relationship was with Jesus at a young age, like 14, 15, 16 years old. So I, I know dragging my kids to church now that one day, if I, you know, keeping, keeping them up, keeping them going, I know one day they will be old enough and mature enough to realize how important having a relationship with Jesus is and how important Jesus is in your life. As you look back at that, what was the turning point? Was there, was there a relationship? Was there a youth pastor? Was was there? No, it was football. It was, it was, um, I played every sport growing up, um, basketball, baseball, tennis, soccer, golf, football. Um, but when I got to high school, all of a sudden, I kind of had a, um, a moment where I realized, wow, I really need Jesus. And um, I want to play football. I want to stay healthy. I need a scholarship to go to college. And Jesus can help me. And it was, it was out of, um, unfortunately, it was, you know, I, I just realized I needed him and he could help me. And as selfish as that was and that is, 
that's how I came. I remember sitting in church one day and I was just like really praying. I think I was a freshman in high school or maybe eighth grade going into high school. And I was worried because I was changing schools and, and going into a new environment of high school football. And I remember uh, sitting in church at Coast Hills uh, Community Church in um, in Orange County, California. And Denny Balesi, our, our pastor who actually married my wife, Shay, Shaylin and I, a decade and a half later, uh, was up preaching. And, and, and I don't remember the exact um, verse he was preaching about or the exact message he was sending. I just remember sitting in church going, man, I want to play football. I want to get a scholarship. I need to stay healthy. I need Jesus and I need, I need him in my life. And my mom wasn't crazy all those years. And she brought me here to have this relationship that started at that time going into high school. Um, she started my relationship with the Lord and I just, I, it wasn't like a light bulb went on or, uh, you know, a certain message that a pastor delivered or a coach delivered. I just, I don't know what it was, but I realized that I needed him in my life. And I had accepted him in my life probably before that sitting in, you know, all those Sundays for years and years and years. But I reaccepted, you know, that point in church where, you know, the, the pastor or the priest gets up and says, is there anybody that would like to accept Jesus in their life? And they can come up on stage or they can come up and get a blessing. Um, I had already done that. And I, I remember, sitting in the audience in a big church of hundreds of people where you don't have that kind of connection in a smaller church where you can go up and get a blessing. It was kind of one of those deals where you just raise your hand and the pastor prays on the people in the crowd that have their hand raised. And I, I, I had, like I said, I had accepted him before, but it was like this, this one, this is the real one. This one really counts because I really need Jesus now because I really want to play football. And so um, there was a moment like that at a young age and, um, like a lot of Christians, I went through highs and lows from, from the beginning of high school, my freshman year on until, till this day, um, there's, there's highs and lows and mountains and valleys and, um, times where I was really, really close with Jesus and just on fire for Jesus. And then there were times where we've been distant and we haven't been as close and I haven't been, um, keeping up with, my daily readings, keeping up with just prayer and praying on all my kids and all those things. Like, like I think a lot of Christians, I've, I've had those peaks and those valleys, um, since, but there was definitely a moment. Um, there were many moments where I accepted Jesus into my life because I don't know, I was young and everybody else in the crowd was doing it. So I did it, but there was definitely a defining moment, uh, right around that 14, 15 year age where I was like, man, I really need, really need God in my life. Almost a shift from a want to a need, which again, through parenting, I think we have a lot of those discussions or sometimes a, a mirror of reflection right back at us with, with our kiddos and that difference between wanting and needing after you committed uh, your life and you needed him. How did that impact you as a athlete? How did that impact you as the quarterback? Um, I think it just gave me a sense of relief knowing um, that I wasn't just going out and trying to play to the best of my abilities um, on my own. Um, it was a sense of, of relief in the way that I could be really nervous before a game or in the middle of a game and just know I could go to, go to Jesus and pray. And, and that faith that he was there with me um, calmed my nerves at times. Um, in some of the valleys where whether it was a blown out knee and my season was over and maybe my career was over broken collarbones broken leg all all the injuries that have come up uh, there was a sense of relief knowing that god's going to get me through this um there was a sense of knowing that even though doctors are saying maybe my career is over i'll never play again i'll never be the player i was that with god i could get back and and i did um, and he got me through some of those moments. So really just, um, I, I think, I think Jesus has just been a relief for, for me through the things that my wife and I've been going through the last couple of years with our kids. There's just a relief and, um, uh, a belief that he may not answer our prayers this week, this month, this year, but he will answer our prayers and he is there with us and he will nurture us through these tough times 
so I, I really, um, my relationship with Jesus is just really, you know, selfishly for me, it's, it's just been a relief knowing he's there for me, even though he doesn't answer every prayer, even though he doesn't answer a prayer the way my wife and I wanted him to or expected him to. Um, just knowing that, you know, our, our relationship with God and my relationship with God, if, if I continue to pray, um, that no matter how he answers this prayer, he'll answer it. It may not be what I want, when I want, how I want it, but just knowing that he's there has um, been a massive sense of relief in, in my 40 years of life. Carson, it's interesting. I hear you say relief, and I almost, like my spirit almost says release. You know, that that you say relief, and it's almost as if, you know, it's been a a release, a release of insecurity, a release of doubt, a release of fear, a release of anything and everything that comes our way, you know, in, in our walk and in our journey. And I would love to, and not to diminish your word relief. I mean, they're almost the exact same thing, but it's a, but it's a, a release of, you know, just <laughs> some of the bondage at the times this world throws on us. So I would love to walk through, if we could, some of these peaks and valleys, um, because I think that's where Obviously, your walk has been strengthened. I think those listening could probably be encouraged because it was, you know, from the outside, a heck of a peak as you're one of the, the most talented players coming out of high school. You grew up in Southern California. You end up committing to USC. And then ultimately, while at USC, someone familiar to the Northwest comes in and, and coaches at USC and Pete Carroll. Can you walk through some of those peaks and valleys collegiately? Yeah, I mean, I, I like I like you were just saying. I mean, I, I went, um, I went on to high school, and I, I needed a scholarship to get me in um, to to university, and, and obviously pay for the university, especially a school like USC. And I loved playing high school football, but I knew that was my ticket to college, and I really, really wanted to go and play college football. And um, I got to call, I, I got to USC. The team had been really bad for a long time. Um, and then Pete Carroll came in my after my sophomore year, going into my junior year, and everything changed. Um, obviously, one of the best college football coaches to ever do it. Currently, one of the best. I think when, he's, when, when it's all said and done, he'll be one of the best professional coaches to ever do it. Um, but he, uh, he came in and just turned the program upside down and changed it virtually overnight he came in and then three years later he'd won his first national championship and went on to win and win and win um and having having um the opportunity to play from him and learn from him and see the leader and how he led which was so different than any other um role model coach teacher pastor um it was so different than anybody else that i had seen do it i'm sorry go ahead yeah, how so, Carson? You know, I was so used to football coaches that yell and scream and cuss and and, and um, discipline, discipline, discipline. Uh, he had a totally different and has a totally different energy about him. He he didn't de- need to deliver a message or a coaching point, yelling, screaming, foaming at the mouth, spit, cursing, all that. Uh, he was just rock steady and solid and highs and lows. He never changed. And his temperament didn't change wins or losses, good plays, bad plays. His voice inflection didn't change. His vocabulary didn't change. Um, he could coach you, uh, by talking to you and he could get on you by having a conversation with you. And he could, he could discipline you by being a man and having a conversation with another man and just man to man conversing, not yelling and screaming and threatening. Um, so I had never seen that and I had never been around that. And for whatever reason, the, the, the collegiate players he's coached, the NFL players he's coached, um, have received his messages and gone on and had success. I mean, the success he's had in Seattle is unparalleled. Um, the success he had in college, Outside of Nick Saban and a handful of coaches um, before him, you, you just don't see that kind of success year after year after year. And it obviously works. The proof is in the pudding. Um, but it was a great time in my life to, to grow up being yelled at and screamed and, and you know, hardcore 
rub some dirt on it type of coach coaching mentality that I had grown up around. It was totally different. And it was so good for me to see that it does things in life don't have to be one way because because somebody was successful with something one way doesn't mean that's the only way to be successful. And I think that was a great lesson for me as a leader and as a man coming into my manhood at 19, 20 years old. It was such a refreshing experience um, that it really shaped me throughout my career to see somebody do something so different um, and be so well respected for that difference. Uh, it really shaped me throughout my life. And then ultimately, immense individual success, right? I mean, as far as college goes, and, and in the end, you may have in, come into a program that, that struggled. And as you said, ultimately, you guys won and won, and you won individually. And what was that like to, to win the Heisman Trophy and, and be at the absolute pinnacle of achievement? It was amazing. I mean, um, I'm so blessed to have, to have been around Pete and, and his staff. The staff was phenomenal from Norm Chow, Steve Sarkeesian, Lane Kiffin. I mean, you go on and on. Kennedy Polleather, Ed Ogeron. I mean, you can go on and on and on. The staff that he put together was, was uh, second to none. But for me to have won the Heisman Trophy, and we went on and played uh, in the Orange Bowl my senior year, and then I ended up being the first pick in the draft, of all those things that were so special, um, the most special thing to me was the group of guys um, that graduated that year or were juniors that year that experienced um, the success we had together because we, we experienced, I think we went uh, five and five one year in the Pac-12. We didn't go to a bowl one year. We went to a Las Vegas bowl. We went to my freshman year. We went to the Sun Bowl. Those aren't bowls and no no disrespect to those bowls but you go to usc to go to the bcs bowls the orange bowl the rose bowl and and for us to have so much turmoil and and paul hackett was the head coach when we got there he got fired we didn't go to a bowl game we went to the sun bowl we went to las vegas bowl and then to end it um going to the orange bowl a bcs bowl game and then to, to move on and see these young guys that we were playing with win national championships and go back, go back to the Rose Bowl, which USC hadn't been to in forever. Um, that was really special for us to feel like we were a part of all that and for us to go through those five and five years to 10 or 11 wins, however many wins we won our senior year was the most gratifying. It was more gratifying than, than winning the Heisman Trophy. It was so special that we came in when the program stunk. And we were leaving the program as a perennial powerhouse. We all had effect on that. And that was really special. The guys like Troy Palomalu that everybody's heard of, um, all the way down to the guys that that shaped it. You know, Malifa McKenzie, Charlie Landrigan, Kerry Colbert. I could go on and on. Eric Torres, I could go on and on. Lenny Vanderby. There's so many guys that were so special and such a big part of that turnaround that aren't the Troy Palomalus or myself that went on to play in the NFL. But guys that saw that program broken and f helped be a part of fixing it. And then, you know, being an alum and sitting back and watching them win national championships, thinking, you know, we maybe had a little, little bit of that and a little piece of that. And we rubbed off on that group that, that went on to do that um, was really, really gratifying for us all. Carson, the cool thing about this podcast, the intersection of faith and sport, right? And everything that you just shared, I'm picturing so many of, of those guys and those environments. And, and anybody in the Northwest listening is like, yeah, man, Coach Carroll is a remarkable leader of, of encouragement and positivity in, in the face of, as you said, a, a sport that usually um, is, is much more prone to the negativity and the fear-based element of it. From a faith standpoint, as you're on that high, as you're winning and, and going to the Orange Bowl, as you're winning the Heisman Trophy, as you become the number one pick, that need versus want that you went back to as a freshman sitting in that church, that need, no longer was this a want, but I, this is a need for me to have relationship with Christ. Where is your need and want as you are journeying through that success? Well, it just grew. It just grew. Um, it was really a snowball effect. I went on through high school um, and into college. And me, personally, I just yearned for more. Um, I, wanted, I wanted God's protection more. I wanted a stronger relationship. I wanted to pray more. I wanted to learn more. 
Um, but I don't think the need, I, I still, I mean, now I've got, I've got four kids that I'm scared to death on a daily basis of the world that they're inheriting from us. And, um, it's still a need. I need G I need Jesus to answer my prayers that both my daughters find a mate and a, and a partner and a husband that love God. Um, it's a need and a, and a want that I want my two boys to grow up and love God and want to know him more and want to, and want a personal relationship with. So, I mean, I, I thought I really needed Jesus in my football career as much as I could ever need him until I started having kids and until I retired and football is long gone. It's a rear view mirror for me. I'm on different things now and I need and want him to protect my kids every day. I need and want him um, and pray that he is, he is shaping and molding a partner for my daughters, a God fearing husband that, that will love and adore my girls. And, um, I need and want Jesus to be preparing a partner, uh, a, a wife for my two boys that, that will honor them and love them and grow in their relationship together with Jesus. So I, Football is long gone, but my need and want for Jesus in my life and in my kid's life, aside from me wanting and needing Jesus to 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 take control of my wife and I's relationship and help us to continue to grow in God, those needs and wants, in my opinion, don't disappear when, when uh, you hang your helmet up and, and you don't put football cleats on anymore. Well, and we share a passion uh, for our love for Compassion International as well, and in the campaign uh, that they're working on that is that's close to you and, and to me as well. That we share a heart for called uh, Fill the Stadium. www.fillthestadium.com. We'll get into a little bit more of that later, and in, in your connection to Compassion International, and your your want, your need uh, to to fill that stadium up and to pour into um, into their ministry around the globe. So we'll get into that a little bit uh, here in a second, Carson, but. Then you ultimately, as we kind of follow this journey <laughs> and this roller coaster that goes up and celebrates and, and you know, kind of a coronation, at least collegially into professionally and become the number one pick of the draft. And you ultimately go to a program. If USC was down, I don't know where Cincinnati was when you came in um, <laughs> perennially, uh, a pro, uh, an organization that just struggled so mightily in the win-loss column. You get drafted to Cincinnati. Where does your faith journey take you then? Uh, it's funny how God works um, because as I look back now on that time of my life and that period of my life, and he absolutely surrounded me um, with, with really a number of individuals, but really two individuals, um, a guy named John Kitna, who you know well, uh, and a guy named Reggie Kelly, who was a tight end. And my locker was in between Reggie's and John's. And I walk in the locker room and those guys had their Bible out every day. They had people sitting at their locker, asking them questions about God, asking them questions about sin, asking them questions about relationships with women, asking crazy questions. And, um, Reggie Kelly was one of my favorite teammates ever. Uh, Mississippi state bulldog, was drafted by the Falcons, came and played in, in uh, Cincinnati right when I got there was his first year. John Kitna played for probably half the teams in the league and, and ended up starting for half the teams in the league because he was a great player as well as a great man. But I, he surrounded me. God put me, literally, you walk in the locker room and it's nothing but lockers. And my locker was the second locker on the right. John Kitna's was the first. Reggie Kelly's was the third. And he sandwiched me between two men that – weren't afraid to love Jesus and let everybody in the locker room know how much they loved him. And so, so I was thrown into the fire, so to speak, around those two guys. And the Bible was out every day. There were questions being fired at both these guys from every angle, you know, from, uh, from non-believers to guys that were half in, half out to, to believers. And so, um, I was a rookie, you know, you, when you come in as a rookie, you know, whether you're the number one pick or the 199th pick or you weren't picked in your agent. So, and especially I was coming, I had, I had just won the Heisman Trophy. I was coming from Los Angeles to Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, you don't want to come in and you just want to come in and work hard and, and shut up. And that was my mindset. And, and 
that should be a rookie's mindset, in my opinion. You don't come in and wearing your SE gear, your Heisman Trophy jacket, or, you know, you don't, I, that's not uh, how I approached my first couple of years in the league. I wanted to come in and work harder than anybody and just, and, and be a good teammate and help us win and do whatever I could. Um, and I came in to that environment and, and it's, it's not, it's not, you know, luck or by happenstance or by chance that was designed. God put those two guys there and it's not by happenstance that my locker happens to be right in between those two guys. That's God. And, uh, that was my, uh, entrance into the NFL was, was really, God just said, here's, here's two great stewards. Here's two great men. You're, here you go. You're welcome. You, you know, you continue to grow from here. And, um, it was, I didn't realize at the time, but it was an absolute blessing. It was the best thing that could have happened to me. One guy, you know, John was in probably year seven, eight, nine. He had like 13 kids at the time. Reggie Kelly was in year six, seven, eight, nine, ten, maybe. Um, he had three kids at the time. And I was, you know, I'm coming in as 20 years old. No kids think people with kids are old and, you know, don't know what to think. I'd never been around a teammate that had kids. I was coming from college. And so to to be put in that environment was God absolutely working. And then ultimately, what, eight years later, through your run in Cincinnati, you end up in Oakland. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, I got, um, you know, I, I spent nine years, I think, in Cincinnati. And um, we'd, you know, done everything we could. We felt like as players and we won a handful of games. But, um, you know, it, it was it was time. Sometimes, sometimes organizations need to move on from players and sometimes players need to move on from organizations. I felt like I'd put it all out there. I had tried everything I could and I just didn't feel like that organization was doing the same. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, contractually, as soon as the, as soon as the guaranteed money is out of your contract, essentially that contract can be up if the team decides. So, um, I decided that it was time. It was time to move on. And I, I took a stance and, and demanded to be traded. And I eventually got traded to Oakland. Uh, was that hard, Carson? How challenging was that? It was hard. A... It was extremely hard. Um, nobody had done that at the time. And at the time, you know, you can't help but watch ESPN or Fox Sports or whatever's on and hear him just crushing you. And, and saying, you know, you can't do this and blah, you know, and hearing all these negative things and also knowing that it does me no good to go and try to defend myself. Um, I dug my feet in the ground and I wasn't going to budge. And um, that, at that time, those things weren't happening. There weren't players saying, you know, there weren't players saying, um, I, this contract is up. The guaranteed money is out. They can cut me at any time. And teams do cut players all the time as soon as the guaranteed money's up. But players weren't doing that. And so I, I dug my feet in the ground. I said, I'm not going to play for this organization. And I loved that. I mean, it, unless unless you have the opportunity to live in Cincinnati um, and the state of Ohio, it's it's an awesome place to live. If you love to hunt and fish and be outside and and I loved all of that, but it just was time organizationally for me to move on from that organization. And people didn't understand it and people didn't get it. And um, I wasn't in a position to go and defend myself because you just you're opening up a whole can of worms. I thought what made sense for the organization, if they really wanted to get better, there was teams offering multiple first round draft picks like this is a it's time. This didn't work with us like nine years we didn't get done what we needed to get done and it was time to move on. And, um, and eventually it happened and I went to Oakland and, and it was, that was, that was crazy. I mean, that Al Davis had passed, I think two days before I got traded. And so I got traded to Oakland. They were still in mourning of Al who was, you know, uh, the steward of that organization for so long. Um, such a great leader when he ran that organization. I mean, they, they had success. Um, you know, there's everybody knows the success the Raiders had back in the day. And he had passed. Um, Hugh Jackson was the coach. They fired Hugh. It was just a, it was, it was, it was going from a very, um, everything was very secure with the Bengals. Nothing changed. 
everything kind of just went like this for decades and decades and decades. And then you get to Oakland and it was like, you know, boom, Al dies, boom. Uh, you know, Hugh Jackson gets fired. They bring in Dennis Allen, they fire him. It was just chaos. And then, um, but it was a special time for me. I mean, it was such a cool, uh, it was a great organization to play for. Anybody that's ever played for the Raiders, uh, the just win baby motto and just all the mottos that come and, and all the cool things that come with playing for the Raiders. I experienced that for a short time. And then boom, before I knew it, I was traded to Arizona. Um, so th there was a handful of years in the kind of middle of my career that were just wild, getting traded from, from Cincinnati to Oakland, Oakland to Phoenix, um, all happened in really three years. Um, uh, so it was a very tumultuous time and, and, um, you know, you know, there's there's peaks and valleys to all careers. And that was definitely it wasn't a peak. It wasn't a valley. It was just kind of right in between. And then the peak came when I got to Arizona and we took off and won a ton of games. How much peace was there in the midst of, of as you said, digging your feet in the ground and, and making that decision? At that point, were you married? Had you uh, started to, uh, to to have your own clan of, Maybe. you know, 15 Maybe. kids like Kitten at that point? Yeah, three. I had three at the time. Wow. So you get married while you're in Cincinnati. And, you know, that's probably a decision then ultimately that you and, and your spouse and your family and your agent and your friends make, as you said, that, that that's difficult because on the outside, you know, it's, it feels like it's been a long time ago. But just as you were sharing that story, I do remember, you know, some of the heat and, and some of the challenge of, of making that stand. Um you know, just kind of speak to some of that as you walk through it with your, your now wife and kids as well. You know, at the end of the day, it was a selfish decision I was making to say to the Bengals, trade me or cut me. Um, but it was one I knew I needed to see. Um, I needed to see if, 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 if I got away from that organization, if I could have success. Um, I felt like I gave it everything I had. I, I would get so frustrated year in, year out with the lack of moves that were made to improve the team. And I wanted to see what it was like playing for a different organization. And then I get to Arizona and man, it was guns blazing. Bring in Bruce Arians. Steve Kime is, is trying to, it, Steve Kime, all he talks about is improving this position and improving this position and sour and, and to get to experience, um, the experience I had in Arizona could not have been better um, from the ownership to the coach, to the entire staff. I mean, Bruce brought in an amazing staff. Um, Steve traded for me. He traded for Chandler Jones. He's, you, you just always saw nothing. Nothing was stagnant. And I was never stagnant. As soon as the season was over, I was training, I was watching film and I finally got to Arizona. I was like, man, this is awesome. Look at this. Oh, we're bringing in Chandler Jones. Like there was always a player we were trading for or improving. Um, and to be a part of that and Steve and, and, and I got to see it up close. Steve would bring me in his office and he had this board going and he was, you know, to, to see a GM work um, those hours and always talk about improvement and winning and winning and winning and nothing else matters. Uh, it was just really cool and refreshing to see at the end of my career and he let me be a part of me. He, not, I wasn't making any decisions by any stretch, but he was asking opinions of this. But hey, you played against this, this corner. Uh, let's let's watch film. Let's watch you work against this corner. Tell me what you like about him. Tell me what you don't like. And and to see him then go on and improve the team. And Michael Bidwell was always so focused on winning and and a championship and winning and winning the division and all these all these things that they're always talking about. Uh, was really, really cool to, to be a part of and get to experience. Um, and I, you know, I, I retired at age 37 and I told Steve all the time, he, he picked me up when I was 34 and I was like, I would always tell him, man, I wish I got here when I was, if I wish I could have been around you when I was 24, 25 and had, you know, really the prime of my career around them. Cause we just, we flourished together and it worked really, really well. The group that, that they brought together. Uh, two things uh, on a personal uh, aside, uh, when I was doing sports radio on an everyday basis in Seattle, Carson, you got to understand that Bruce Arians was a constant conversation <laughs> for, 
for us in Seattle with the rivalry that uh, that existed there with the Cardinals and the Seahawks for a number of years. And you referenced Coach Carroll in your years at USC, who went about talking to players a certain way and wasn't necessarily, um, you know, yelling and screaming and cussing and doing all of that. How did you navigate that relationship with Bruce? Um, really easily. I mean, he just wanted to win. He knew if he didn't win, he'd get fired. Um, I knew if I didn't win, they'd bench me and put somebody else in. Um, totally different strategically than Pete. Um, team meetings were totally different. Practices were totally different. Um, but I had a great deal of respect for Bruce and Bruce had a great deal of respect for me. And he coached me different than Pete and he talked to me different than Pete. Um, but it didn't, uh, it didn't change the result. It didn't change my mindset. It didn't change the way I felt for him or towards him. There was a massive amount of trust, um, and a massive amount of respect that we each had for each other. And I think that goes for, for Pete and I too. There was a massive amount of trust and respect we had for each other. So there's not one way for a relationship to work. There's not one way for a coach and player relationship to work. Um, I think trust and respect have to be the foundation of, of that relationship. Um, but Bruce and I, I mean, we just both wanted to win. We were both at, he was at the same point in his career pretty much. I mean, he's still now, he, he then came back out of retirement, which I ain't doing. Um, but he was at the end of his career. He just wanted to win a Super Bowl. I was at the end of my career. I just wanted to win a Super Bowl. And, um, he would deliver similar message very differently to me than Pete Carroll did. But the message was about winning. The message was about competing. The messages were about getting better. The message, the messages were about how we're going to get better. Um, so the delivery process is really irrelevant. It's a lot nicer coming from Pete than it is coming from Bruce, but the message is still the same compete, improve and get better. Well, the guy that uh, Bruce is now coaching, and you thought that you two were at the end of it, and he said, no, not so fast. I'm going to have a 44-year-old that I'm going to come back to and try to coach and get that Super Bowl. Uh, Tom Brady's still doing this at 44. Drew Brees is into his 40s. The, the guy up in Seattle named Russell Wilson wants to play until he's 50. As you mentioned, 37, you step away from the game. Uh, once again, I think your choice, Carson, because people, I'm sure, wanted you to continue to play. Um, how did you know it was time to close that door at 37? Well, I, I, at the time when I was 37, my youngest was two and my oldest were nine. So my old, my two twins that, that were nine at the time were really starting to get into sports and really starting to get out of the house and, and have activities that I was missing out on. And I would leave on Saturdays for road games when they were, I'd be driving to the stadium for practice and then we'd get on a plane and fly to Baltimore or wherever we were playing and they'd be getting in the car my wife would be driving them to flag football or soccer you know I didn't want to miss that um when I played in Cincinnati it was great because I still got to hunt uh in the fall during football season and then I got traded to Oakland and Arizona where I couldn't I, there, there was just things I was missing um outside of football whether it be kids stuff, whether it was personal selfish things that I wanted to go and do and experience and take my kids on trips and, and, and do all these different things. I just didn't want to miss those things anymore. Um, that was a big part of it. That was, that was, that was half of it. The other half is, man, I didn't quite have, you, you see these older, these older quarterbacks now, they don't quite have the zip on the ball. You I mean, you, you remember Peyton's last year, they won a super bowl, but he, that ball was coming out differently. Um, you watch Drew play, the ball comes out differently. You watch Tom play, the ball comes out differently than it did when they were 34 or 32 or 28. Um, I started, you know, 36, 37. The ball was coming out different. I was starting to really, I, was, I wasn't I was sore just on Monday and Tuesday after a Sunday game. I was sore all the way through Friday. Um, and I kind of, as a player, I was, my, my thing wasn't to take off and run like Russ or, or, Lamar or Patrick or some of these young guys you see to, my, my thing was sitting in the pocket and I could take hits. I was a big physical quarterback. I could take a physical games play and still get back up and keep going. Um, 36, 37, I, I, I wasn't getting any faster. The, my velocity was, was definitely decreasing. 
Um, but I was sore and hurt a lot longer throughout the week where Friday's practice was a bear for me at 36. I, I remember I was still, I was still sore from the previous Sunday on Thursday and Friday's practice. Um, so it was, it was a, a culmination of, you know, of just, I knew my body was telling me, Hey, you know, this is, you still want to hunt. You still want to hike. You still want to coach your kids football. You still want to go out and tackle your son in the backyard. Um, you know, it was my mind kind of telling me all these things that, you know, my football career, I was getting old, but I was still young um, in my dad career. And, and I didn't want to get to the point where I went just a little, you know, a little too long, one season too long where you get a back or a neck injury that changes the rest of your life. I was, you know, 37. I was walking away from the game with, you know, four, five, six surgeries that really weren't that big of a deal and nothing really serious. Thank God. Um one real bad concussion, but not a bunch of bad concussions. And I just wanted to experience a lot of things I missed out on uh, during my career. There was a lot of things I wanted to experience with my family and my kids that I knew if I kept playing, I was going to miss these windows. And you know, as, as your kids are getting older, before you know, man, they're gone. Before you know, they're out of the house. Before you know, they're in college. And they're, and and um, there was just enough things that I wanted to do that I didn't get to do Um and missed out on that I didn't want to miss out on anymore. And now that the door has closed, Carson, and in football, and you said this a couple times, is in the in the distant uh, rearview mirror, uh, long ways away. What uh, what fills the tank now besides the kids and the wife, which you've spoken to so beautifully, and pouring into their into their lives? What 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 is a day in the life of Carson Palmer now, and where are you pouring that same need and want in your faith relationship? Um, into your communities and, and, and beyond? A lot of different areas. Um, when I got done, I had a number of opportunities, whether it was coaching, broadcasting, TV, radio. Um, and I, I, I looked at them and I, I sat through the interviews and I sat, um, you know, through the discussions and, and listened to the deal flow and, and all those things that come with, with those opportunities and they were great opportunities, and I was blessed and, and still am blessed to have those opportunities come across my desk. Um, but I think I, I just wanted to do something outside of football. To, for me to go into talking about football is – I can talk about football all day. Right? And, and, you know, I have a Ph.D. in football, and um, I, I think at the end of the day I just wanted to – get away from it a little bit and do something else and challenge myself in, in other areas. Um, as soon as I got done, I, the next fall, I started taking, um, courses online, commercial real estate, residential real estate. Um, all I've always been interested in real estate and I've got, um, a handful of different businesses I'm working with now, um, in, in that, um, in that market that I love and it, it sparks my interest and keeps me um, excited about learning and reading and, and sitting through meetings and listening. And um, it's really piqued my interest to the point where um, I love it as much as I love football as nerdy and geeky as that sounds. Um, I love it. And so that's, I got that going Four kids is a whole nother uh, segment of my life, obviously. And, and a it takes up a big chunk of time. We talked a little bit about Compassion International, um, doing some work with Compassion, doing some work with our local church here and, and the preschool there and keep helping, um, keeping them running with, with um, some of the issues the world is, is going through right now financially. Um, so just kind of, I've got my hands in a bunch of different um, pots, so to speak. Um, and I'm, the, always the one saying, stay in your lane, stay in your lane, stay in your lane. Um, but I got outside of my football lane and, and am um, intrigued on a daily basis in, in, a, in a company I've got with a partner in, in a real estate world. Um, and I fall in on all the stuff. My kid, I've got a daughter into horseback riding. My son's currently playing football. My daughter's playing volleyball. My four-year-old's a four-year-old, so I've got that going. Um I, you know, people are like, people kind of ask, you know, what do you do all day? You sit around and do nothing? No, you know, I've got my hands full with friends' podcasts to friends' radio shows to, to different <laughs> stuff. Yes. Uh, 
I'm more busy now than I was when I was playing as crazy as that sounds. Um, but I love it. And it's, it's been, um, an absolute blessing and so much fun, um, to try to step away from football and have success in a different, um, arena. And that's been really, really fun and really, really challenging. And I've been blessed to have, um, just from my days at USC and, and, you know, when you're at in college and I, I know you back from your days at, at UW, you know, you just, UW's a family, USC's a family and, and I've called on that family and I've got great mentors that are extremely successful in the real estate world in a number of different ways um, that have been so helpful and such great mentors and such great sounding boards for me. So I've been really, really blessed to have um, a lot of support heading into really a new world for me. Carson, last couple things here. You mentioned about the different deals that come across your table, the different calls that come your way, your different friends that may call to have you on this podcast or that podcast or, or this show or, or, you know, just, just knocking at your door. Why do you say yes to compassion? Why did, why did you answer? Compassion's been an amazing sponsor of this podcast, Carson, for four years with me. I've told the story many times of, of my heart to, to do a faith and sports podcast, that there's lots of faith-based podcasts, lots of sports-based podcasts. Uh, Jason Romano, my buddy at Sports Spectrum, uh, he and I have a, a heart for this, for faith and sports podcast. And Compassion from day one on an airplane ride, when I met Mike Johnson, uh, has formed a, a partnership, and, and I love their heart. I love how they serve. You mentioned earlier about being a rookie, right? And as a rookie, what do you do? You come in and you work and you shut your mouth and you serve and you and you work hard. And the people at Compassion and sponsoring millions of kids around the globe and traveling with them, Carson, as I have and, and getting to see them just work and serve. And it's not about all of them and putting themselves out there. Uh, they're an amazing, amazing group. And, and I can give you my why. But why did you answer that call? Why did you, when that door um, came open and, and they reached out, why, why did you say yes? So my wife, Shaylin, and I both come from a very similar background of two-parent homes. Um, both of our parents loved us unconditionally, supported us. My wife was a, a soccer player. Her parents traveled the country every weekend, soccer tournaments and club tournaments and this and that. I was playing club basketball, football. My parents were at every practice, every game. And compassion is about kids that don't have parents or parents that aren't involved in their lives. And, um, we wanted to, we, we've done a number of different charity things and they all seemingly have been around kids and helping disadvantaged kids, whether it was, um, the boys and girls club in Cincinnati, uh, Phoenix children's hospital in, in Arizona, um, compassion, We've just had a soft heart for kids that didn't grow up the way we went. We grew up and didn't have positive role models in their lives, in their homes, at family dinners every night. And so um, I don't even know how I came across compassion. It might have been through Steve Stenstrom. Maybe you brought it up. I, I don't know exactly how it came up, um, but it's pretty funny. I, I'm doing um, another, I don't even know what I'm doing on a Saturday, a podcast of some sort, or maybe it's a zoom call for, um, uh, for like an after school program. I, a buddy of mine called me, his name's Brian Hill. He's, he actually rehab, I, I dislocated, tore my thumb up and had surgery. And he um, is a physical therapist and he rehabbed my thumb. Long story short, he calls me a couple days ago. He says, hey, do this thing for me cool, I'll do it. And he's like, is there anything you're, you're pubbing right now? I'm like, perfect. I'm, I'm pubbing, um, trying to get this, this name compassion out there, compassion international. And so he's like, all right, I'm, he's online. He's like, Oh, this is really cool. Oh, well, as you're doing this, I can put a video up for compassion and, Oh, this is really cool. My wife and I are going to sponsor two kids. And mm. his brother walks in the room as we're on the phone and his brother's like, Oh, this is compassion. What is this? Oh, cool. I want to sponsor some kids. And it's just that snowball effect um, it's, it's an amazing organization and, and that is tried and true and does so much for kids, but it's so easy to be a part of. And it's, um, as, as I was getting off the phone with Brian and he was signing up online as we're talking to sponsor a kid and then he ended up sponsoring two kids. He's like, Oh, I got to tell my cousin about this. And it's, it's such a great organization because it's so easy to be a part of. 
And it's so easy to have such a big impact. And there's very few things um, in the world that are so easy to have a massive impact. I mean, we're talking about you sponsor one kid and you are providing food, shelter, protect. You are do, having such a massive Im- impact on one life. And it's so simple to do. Um, and I think that's what, you know, it, it's so hard to have a big impact. Um, one of the things we had planned, we were taking our kids to Guatemala through compassion. Um, we were planning on going last spring and we're going logistically through it. We were going to go and we're going to, we were going to spread, um, we were going to share the gospel and and teach kids about Christ. And we were going to get to meet each one of our kids had sponsored, we ended up sponsoring four five, six, seven kids each. And we were going to go and get to meet them and get to see them. And, and then obviously COVID hit. And that was such a great way to have a big impact. And I was so excited for our family to go and see the world from a different lens and go and see kids that weren't growing up like them and go and see kids that were really having difficult times and don't have support and don't have love and don't have the things that they have every second of every day. And that was a great way for us to have a big impact. And unfortunately, COVID happened and that trip is now um, delayed. Um, kids go online and they, they check on the kids they're, they're, um, they're sponsoring every day. And it's seeing that impact on um, my kids, seeing the impact that Brian and his brother and his cousin found out about this. And all of a sudden, boom, six, seven, eight kids are now sponsored. And now, now kids are getting food and water and clothes and shelter and and, you know, just the small, easy way you can impact a child's life through compassion um, is really, really special. It is. And so are you, Carson. And, and I know you don't like to, to put yourself out there and tell the whole world everything that you're doing. But, man, your generosity and your matching donation commitment to this is just phenomenal. And as Carson said, COVID-19, it may prevent us from filling sports stadiums. It may prevent us from, in Carson's case and in his family's case, and going and seeing their sponsored children in person. Um, but we can't let it prevent a stadium's worth of children from getting the essential food, love, support they need during this crisis. So you can join Carson and me and many, many others in helping children in poverty through this crisis. And there's an amazing site with compassion. You can go to www.fillthestadium.com, www.fillthestadium.com. And Carson's heart and my heart is to see an NFL stadium. About 70,000 is the average size of an NFL stadium. I know they're empty right now <laughs> in a bunch of parts. They'll be filled again. And we want to fill that stadium with sponsorships uh, for kids at Compassion. So that's all you got to do is go to www.fillthestadium.com. All the information is there. You'll see the amazing stories. You can hear more from, from Carson and Steve Stenstrom and Nate Solder and so many that have a heart like you do, Carson, to, to impact to impact those around the globe. And, and like you, I grew up in an amazing home with a mom and dad that loved me. Uh, but millions and millions and millions of kids around the country, around the, not only this country, around the world, don't have that and live in immense poverty. And here's a chance to make an impact. Above and Beyond, the intersection of faith and sports. Subscribe to receive every episode at aboveandbeyondpodcast.com.